0: Clover gives you the power to run a smarter, faster restaurant. See everything in real time with the kitchen display system. Streamline takeout and
1: delivery with online ordering. With the right tech, quick service is getting even quicker. Clover. Accept payments, run your business, and sell more. For a limited time only, visit Clover.com to get a $450 statement credit on qualified hardware purchases. That's www.Clover.com. Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. This is a STS special, Surviving My Biggest Case. Here's your host, Emmy Award-winning journalist,
4: Joel Waldman. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in true crime, and this is an STS special, Surviving My Biggest Case, where we talk to our best guests in law enforcement about the biggest case of their career. And today, we've got none other than Detective Phil Ramos, a retired senior homicide detective with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, 35 years of service. The last 15 were in homicide. His assignments included 12 years undercover uh, detective in narcotics and organized crime, uh, he's a court-certified expert in major crimes investigations, undercover and covert operations, interview and interrogation techniques, and evidence collection. He is a three-time Officer of the Year award. A native Las Vegan, by the way, he tried to infiltrate the Cuban mob. Uh, he was there for Tupac Shakur's autopsy, confirming his death. And he also loves riding his Harley. Uh, Detective Ramos, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate it. Um, sure. yeah, as we do with this, uh, with this particular series, I don't even really ask you what we're going to talk about till we're right here. So it's authentic. Yeah. So, uh, take me back. Uh, what, what's the case? Uh, what year is this? What were you working at the time and we'll oh, break it down.
0: Um, actually this was not in homicide. I was working undercover in narcotics and, uh It it was a pretty big, pretty big deal. We had been negotiating a purchase of 240 kilos of cocaine from none other than Pablo Escobar's organization. Uh, It was part of a uh, drug task force with uh, ATF and DEA, and I was uh, the undercover guy on it. Um, And... (laughs) This name may ring a bell to some people, but I'll refresh him anyway. Um, the informant on this was a guy named Barry Seal. And he was a uh, pilot, had been flying loads of cocaine from uh, the jungles in, in South America up to the United States, East Coast, West Coast. And Barry became an informant for the DEA after he'd gotten arrested several times. In fact, they made a movie after him. Featuring Tom Cruise, who played his role in the movie was called American made. He ended up getting killed. I, I think it was over this deal, but anyway, um, myself and my partner at the time, Jimmy, Vaccaro, we were, the undercover guys, and we had negotiated this purchase of, uh, 240 some kilos for a million dollars. And, um, Barry flew up from South America in a, in a Lear jet with two of Pablo's guys with him, and they had the, the cocaine in two big styrofoam containers, and we unloaded them. Um, the jet itself was a, a Learjet, and it was stripped bare on the inside. There was nothing inside except fuel cells because he wanted to get it, only make as a minimal number of stops as, as he could. So Barry flew it in, landed landed at uh, Henderson Airport, which is not too far from uh, the strip, but um, and Jimmy and I unloaded the, the kilos of cocaine with the two guys from uh, Pablo's group. And they all had layered clothing on because they had stripped everything out of the jet, so they had no heating, nothing there. So it was, you know, the altitudes that they were flying, they, they were pretty cold. So we unloaded it, took it to um, a hotel with a caravan. You know, we had uh, like four primary undercover vehicles, uh, that myself and Jimmy were driving the load of cocaine in, in our vehicle, and then we had probably 10 surveillance cars following us. And um, we went to a hotel at the time called the Continental Hotel, and we unloaded the cocaine from the parking lot, went up into a room, and we were going to wait there so that um, the the guys who were going to actually do the deal with us came from LA. There was a, They were delayed in LA, so they were on their way, and we had to sit with the cocaine and, and <laughs> Pablo's guys in this hotel room. And and so here's Jimmy and I with 246 kilos of cocaine waiting for the other guys to show up. We had already shown the million dollars to them, mm-hmm. um, but we weren't going to like do the deal until they gave the okay. So we did that about 10 30 at night, 11 o'clock at night. And so we babysat the cocaine and the two guys <laughs> and they fell asleep because they were exhausted. They'd been up for like a day and a half. And so Jimmy and I, you know, our adrenaline's just going and we're, we're sitting here in this little hotel room with, with 200 plus kilos of cocaine, million dollars on the line. And we were so amped up, we didn't even get tired. We, we just were just ready for all this to happen. So about six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning, these guys wake up and we hadn't heard from the L.A. guys yet. And so they said, well, what's going on? And this was in Spanish. They said, what's going on? I said, well, we're waiting to hear from your guy. So they made a phone call and and by then they could tell that Jimmy and I were really tired. And they said, how come you guys are so tired? I said, well, we've been up all night. You know, we didn't want to fall asleep. He said, you have 240 kilos of cocaine right there and you're tired. And I thought that's a damn good question. (laughs) and i said well you know we we don't mess with any of the product it's not ours yet we you know the money hasn't changed hands so he said okay well i I get that so they were waiting and they wanted to see the million dollars again so we had we had showed it to him about three days before and that's when they started to load up um so we had to scramble to get the million dollars in cash from one of the local banks and we didn't have anything to put it in they wanted to it's called the flash money. So we wanted to. They wanted to do the flash at the casino to make sure no nothing happened. Nobody got ripped off. We didn't have anything to put a million dollars in in hundred dollar bills because it's, it's pretty substantial. <laughs> <laughs> so we put it in a big garbage bag, big black <laughs> garbage bag, and I slung it over my shoulder, and I looked like you know Santa Claus with this big black garbage bag, and it's got a million dollars of cash in it. And our supervisors are just going crazy because we're walking through a casino. I got a million dollars on my back and here's people walking around. And, and I'm thinking, God, I hope nobody you know, knocks me down. And this bag bursts open and this hundred dollar bills go flying through the casino. And so we went to a bank of phone booths. So that I, I we went to the phone booths, um, flashed the cash to the guys and they're getting ready to make the phone call to L.A. Say, yeah, everything's good to go. While we're doing that, this little grandma's getting in line with her $5 coupon to get, uh, $5 worth of free play on the, on the slot machine. And I said, this is, you know, I, I had to take advantage of this. And, and I said, excuse me, ma'am, um, I'll trade you that $5 for what I have in my garbage bag here. And she says, oh no, honey, I can't do that. This is $5. I'm going to go gamble. I'm going to go win some money. So, said, well. You don't even know what I have in my garbage bag. And she says, and, and then the guys are getting nervous because I said, What are you doing? What the hell are you doing what's with this lady involved? I said, Come on, man, just lighten it up. We, you know, we've got to have some kind of fun here. So she, I said, You don't know what's in my in my garbage bag. You might want that. She goes, It's garbage. Why why would I want that? And I said, Come here, take a look at this. I open it up and she looks inside. And she goes, <laughs> Oh, my God, Sonny, you're going to get in trouble. Where did you get all that money? And, and then it was her time to go cash in her $5 coupon to get, play her uh, $5 and nickels at the at the slot machines.
4: Well, I, ha- I have so many questions. Hang on one sec. So, first of all, physically, because um, you said, I remember you said in another show, uh, did you have, like, long hair and a beard at this point? You look in the part?
0: Oh, yeah. I'll, um, I'll send you pictures. Yeah, I was definitely looking the part, man. I was, like... Uh,
4: like and a, what? What year is this?
0: This was um eighty three, eighty four, right around
4: then. Wow. Yeah. So, well, I have questions here, and then we'll get right back into it. So, Barry Seal, this guy, he obviously is an informant. So yeah. he knows what's happening. He's yeah. in on it. He's yeah, he's in on, in it.
0: on it, and and um, he's coordinating with his DEA handler who was making sure that everything went good. And the whole task force was, you know, everybody was just crazy with, you know, this was the biggest dope deal that we'd ever done in Las Vegas. So um, they waited for the guys to drive up from LA. It took them about four hours um, and they pulled into the back parking lot. I come down with a million dollars and I gave the bus signal. And then cops just swarmed out of everywhere and surrounded the van that these guys showed up in to collect the million dollars. And we took them down and uh, everything went good from there. Um, And then about six weeks later, we get word that um, Escobar's organization was really mad about this. (laughs) And they had put a contract out on me. In fact, this was the second contract of three that had been out on me when I was working undercover. Um, oh, wow. But this is the one that I took the most serious because um, they didn't mess around. They don't, you know, they don't care if you're a cop. They don't care who you are. They're going to kill you for, you know, he's out a million, million dollars worth of cocaine. Yeah. So um,
4: real quick. So so the two guys coming from L.A., they get arrested. Yeah. Uh, and the, the two guys who flew up, uh, they're arrested as well. Right. Right. Okay, so, so, the, so there's four guys, and Barry Seal is still on your team. When you say you give the bus signal, what does that mean in uh, layman's terms?
0: Well, the surveillance team is watching the undercover guys. And mm-hmm. when when we um, are ready for the arrest to take place, we give a predetermined signal. In this case, it was I was running my hand through my hair and flipping my ponytail and stuff like that, mm-hmm. which... Sometimes you got to remember when you're the undercover guy. You got to remember what your bus signal is because if your head itches and you start to scratch it, <laughs> the surveillance team's going to say, "Oh shit, let's go. We got to get him. We got to get him." That's the bus signal. But in this case, it, there was a problem. I, I, I did have problems like that in the in the past, but this was um, you know the most obvious bus signal. So that because we had 15 guys surrounding the parking lot in undercover cars in different positions. Um, just to make sure everything went right because we i mean we were dealing with a major organization here well
4: so well, and and the money in the bag that's real american cash a million yeah, bucks worth you
0: yeah see? we we checked it out of the vault of one of the banks here and um <laughs> you know to them it was no big deal but we had to sign for it that we were responsible if something happened the police department was responsible for <laughs> returning one million dollars and uh, <laughs> wow
4: Back then, too. I mean, that's eighty three, so that's a lot more money back yeah, then. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of like the height of uh, of um, all the like the Miami. Uh, why yeah. am I blanking? On uh,
0: exactly the Tony Montana days.
4: Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. So this is the height of that. So um, Miami Vice. I couldn't think of it for some oh. reason. So uh, two hundred forty kilos. You guys, you give him the bus signal. Who, who's your partner, by the way? I want to give him a shout out. I yeah. know you said his name.
0: His name was Jimmy Vaccaro,
4: Vaccaro, and he's yeah. uh, he's yeah. undercover same same yeah, he, way.
0: He, yeah, and we were partners in narcotics for several years, and then we became partners in homicide for several years. So we were we
4: knew each other pretty well. Wow! And is Jimmy still in Vegas? Yeah, he's still in Vegas. Nice. Yep. Okay, yep. so you guys, uh, you give the bus signal, you start like kind of rubbing your head and your ponytail, and uh, your undercover guys know, so they swarm the area. Yeah. Uh, a few months go by, and now you find out. Um, how do you find out there's a contract on you?
0: One of the informants, not Barry, but one of his guys that, that worked with him here in Vegas had found out. And Barry was under in protective custody because there was also a contract out on him. And ultimately, if you saw the movie or if you know anything about it, Barry got whacked on, in front of mm. the uh, federal building in the mm. New Orleans, I believe. Um, Right before a trial was supposed to start, they killed him, and so we knew that they were serious about it. And um, this was, like I said, this was the second contract that had been put out on me, and I, you know, we just kind of dismissed it because we thought, what's the big deal? They're not going to. Why, why would they come after me? You know. So yeah. one day I'm I'm uh, I'm driving home. This is about about six months after the bus. I'm driving home in my undercover car, and I'm about a mile from my house, and at a red light, and just as the light turns green, another car pulls up next to me, and as they're pulling up, I you know, start to proceed through the uh, intersection with the green light. Next thing I know, two gunshots go through the back of my car, and this car takes off and, and heads down towards the strip, and I looked over there, and, and I saw, yeah, there's two bullet holes in the back of my police car, and I, or my undercover car, and it had gone out the others on the driver's side, they pulled up on the passenger side, took the two shots, went right behind my head. One went through the headrest and the other one went through the post of the door. So I thought, well, this is, you know, this, this is kind of serious. So I pulled over and, and dug out my police radio. It was buried in the trunk and said, hey, somebody just shot at me. And this is it was a, uh, a maroon colored. Maroon colored Lincoln. And that was all I could see next thing i know there's swat surrounding me and you know i they escort me home and i've got swat team living at my house for like a week wow
4: now are you are you are you married or anything at this time children I, anything like that i had two, i had two teenage
0: boys that i'm raising by myself and um they thought it was the greatest thing in the world because swat guys were <laughs> at the house and you know driving them to school and uh, and you know, that's, I, a,
4: that's a, that's dangerous business, like a for the, for the family, yeah, um, yeah. next level. So how, how, you know, when you finally process that they, someone took these two shots at you, obviously you put two and two together. You're like, Oh God, these are the guys from Pablo's team. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, we, we interviewed not to digress for one second, but on our show a long time ago, for those interested, we interviewed a guy named Luis Navia. And he's here in Miami and he worked for Pablo Escobar. Um, he spent time in uh prison. He was ultimately caught. Um, but if you see this guy, uh, he looks like you know an accountant. Like you would just never yeah. know. He's yeah. like the most mild-mannered looking yeah. guy. Uh, but he was basically um kind of uh what's the word? He 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 was uh, I can't think today, but he he was basically uh, courted courted into this business and got super deep in with a with a woman who's famous and I can't recall her name. But anyway, uh, it's interesting because here was one of Pablo Escobar's henchmen here in Miami. And he's very, you would just never know. Like, I mean, he's out right. now. He talks openly about it. And yeah. if you saw him at the Publix, which is our supermarket, you would just think the guy was an accountant. But anyway, uh, so I digress. So you've got two teenage boys. Um, you see these uh, bullet holes, bullets whizz by your head and you obviously connect the dots. So you've got it with two children at home. You've got to be pretty upset or worked up at this point.
0: Yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't show it to them, but I, you know, I got a hold of our commander and said, look, this is serious. And and we got to figure out what we're going to do about it. And, you know, they were in the process of putting alarms on my house and stuff like that. Um, So back in the eighties, you know, police work was much different. And they decided that uh, they knew who the, the informant who had passed on the information um, had a direct contact with the folks down in South America. So they snatched him in and said, look, two big, well, three big burly cops grabbed him and said, you need to give this message to your boss that if they start a war with our department here by killing one of ours, then the war is going to get very ugly and there's going to be a lot of casualties. Um, in other words, they threatened it. You know, if you kill our guy, we're going to come after you guys. Uh, yeah. Back when you could do, still do police work like that. Yeah. And, and
4: was it obvious that I mean, did Escobar know that you were a police officer? They, they oh, yeah. knew that. Okay. Yeah, they
0: knew. As soon as you know, as soon as the bus took place in the parking lot, they knew that it was me. That I was the undercover guy. So, okay. They, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They knew it was me. And and, and
4: they, why why you and not your partner Vicaro?
0: Because I was the one that spoke Spanish. I was the one that was. You know, just kind of heading the whole thing up. Okay, I was the one doing all the talking. I was the one that that was the role player, and and Jimmy was, you know, like my my muscle. Jimmy's a Got big, it. strong guy. So um, yeah, they came after me because I was the one that was just putting the whole thing together. And the fact, you know, I spoke Spanish. I was the only Hispanic on on in the narcotics, and you know, obviously, you look at me. You know, I don't look like a pasty white guy, and I, <laughs> I, I fit the role. So I, I. It got me a lot of, got me inside a lot of dope dealers doors that most people wouldn't have been able to get into. But the downside to it was they didn't worry about um, taking me out if they had to. And, you know, that was the thing that that I realized when I was working undercover is, you know, you go back to um, the boat lift from Mariel Harbor, the Marielitos, they called them, that stayed there under the freeways in Miami. Yeah. Um, those guys were the most hardened hardcore criminals I'd ever come across. Nobody held a candle to the to the Marilito drug dealers. Not now that's I, I'm just I'm not blanketly saying everybody who came from Marielle were bad people. they weren't. There was a huge number of good people from Cuba that showed up. But what a lot of people didn't realize is that Castro, Fidel Castro had emptied his prisons and sent all those prisoners um, on the boat lift. They came to Miami right out of the Castro's prisons because he didn't want to feed them anymore. Mm. So they're free here in America, and they are going to continue their life of crime. And we busted several of them here in Vegas. And the one thing that they did say to us was, you know, we're not afraid of going to prison here in America. Your your prisons are nothing compared to what we've been through in, in Havana and in Cuba. You know, Fidel would just make sure that we all suffered in and you know, a lot of us were killed in there. So they weren't afraid to go to jail here in, here in America because it was nothing to them. Not after they had spent time in, in prison with uh, Castro. Mm.
4: Yeah. I've, I've spoken to the uh, old timers, the reporters here in Miami and in the eighties, if it was literally not a triple or at least a quadruple homicide, they wouldn't even send a news reporter out to cover the story because there yeah. were so many murders yeah. and they were yeah. so violent. Um, you know, there was triple and quadruple homicide, you know, a few times a week, every week during that period of time. But um, but back to your story. So you so you talk to your commander uh, and you say, listen, this is serious. They just tried to kill me. And then uh, how do you guys proceed from there?
0: We just we just sent a couple of <laughs> like I said, we sent a couple of uh, big burly cops and gave them a message that, you know, you need to call this off because it's not you're not going to you're not going to win this war if you start a war, if you hurt one of our guys, we're going to hurt many, many more of yours. And it's, it's just not a good idea. So, um, that was the end of it.
4: And, and where, there. but where, where did you know that these big burly cops, like, how did you notice where, where were you sending them to talk to who? Uh,
0: that I can't tell
4: you. Okay.
0: <laughs> the, uh, the informant who originally put the whole thing together they went to talk to him and gave him the message to give the people in South America and, and I would imagine that DEA and ATF had a little bit to input with it too, because it wasn't just Las Vegas going to knock on the door of this of this person and say, you know go back to your people in uh, Colombia and tell them this isn't going to happen." So um, it it was um, it, that was the end of it. For that for that particular contract that was the end of it so well, uh,
4: and, and this is like this is so this is literally 40 years ago um what's the drug business like uh 40 years later Are they still run in the same amount of drugs more what do you think
0: oh not cocaine yeah cocaine has dropped way down right now everything is fentanyl and opioids and, and stuff like that uh, the Cubans the Cuban Marielito drug dealers they dispersed and and went on to different ventures i mean they're still involved in the cocaine trade but not to the extent that it was in the decadent 80s man i mean it was everywhere everywhere in, in you're in south florida you know that they they <laughs> i keep referring to um that movie with tony montana scarface and it was very much like that it really was like that um you know, a little bit of Hollywood in there, but they they had banks so they could launder their money. They had businesses so that they could get the money into the banks and launder it. It was it was a pretty, pretty in-depth organization. And then and then the big guys started to fall. Uh, Pablo got whacked um, and they. Uh, there's other people filled in for him, but not to the extent that that I don't think we'll ever see that again. the the Tony Montana days. I don't think we'll ever see that again, but, um, cocaine isn't, isn't the lucrative business that it was back then. We were paid. I paid, um, 15,000 per kilo for that deal. Whatever it was, it was was around 15,000 per kilo, but there was a time when you were, when I was paying 20, 25,000 for a kilo of cocaine. Mm. Um, and then it dipped down and it just wasn't as lucrative anymore. Well, I, and I, I say that all in an undercover capacity. You know, <laughs> I wasn't yeah. going out buying cocaine myself. It was all, you know, bust like that. But that, that still is the biggest undercover purchase of cocaine here in Nevada that, that uh, we ever had. But we had dozens of smaller, you know, five, 10 kilo deals, one kilo deals, stuff like that, because it was just so much of it. I mean, cocaine was just everywhere, man. It was just everywhere.
4: And the guy who fired at you had a description of a maroon car. You never, you never tracked that guy down. No, never did find him. Never you did never find him. him. So when you're, when you're looking back now, you're retired, uh, you're playing golf, maybe you're riding your Harley. Uh, do you sit there and say it's a miracle that you're alive uh, after having gone through, uh, you know, the undercover work that you've done? Um,
0: you know, I don't know that I'd call it a miracle. I I, I had a lot of, good breaks. Um, but, you know, police work is inherently dangerous, man. It doesn't matter what assignment you are in. It, the chances of you getting killed are higher as a patrol officer or a traffic officer as an undercover guy or an investigator or, you know, homicide detective. You know, homicide, we we have all these young buck rookies to go out and do all our, uh, you know dangerous work. We, all we do is come in and, and grab the killer and, and try and get him to confess. Mm. But, um, I think the most, the closest to death I ever came was when I was in patrol. Um, it was a domestic violence call and, and, uh, we had answered it and lady lady had been beat by her husband and she had, you know, marks on her face and we said, well, where's he at? Oh, he's back in the back bedroom. So we go walking back there to get him and he's laying in bed and he's got the covers pulled over him. And, you know, we took each side of the bed and said, Hey, you know, you got to come with us. And we pulled the covers back and he had two guns pointed at us. He said, I was just about to shoot you guys before you walked over here and pulled the covers back. And, and they were, I mean, it was three, four feet away.
4: Wow. Why do you think he didn't shoot?
0: I don't know i'm glad he didn't hopefully he would have missed but uh yeah i don't know but there's you know there's things like that that just they happen as a matter of routine and and can't let them affect you because you're not going to do a good job if you do if you're always scared and always worried about it it's always in the back of your mind so you're always looking for those signs you know we develop that sixth sense when we know something's wrong or something's about to go go wrong and um you know, you see you see videotape all the time of a from a, inside a patrol car and, and the officer says, oh, he's getting ready to run. He's going to take off. And sure enough, five, 10 seconds later, the, the pursuit is on. And you just you just learn to recognize those indications that things are about to get shitty real fast.
4: Yeah, that's crazy. And they say that, uh, you know, routine traffic stops are the most dangerous and that family you know domestic uh, cases are the most dangerous. Um, yeah. So, I love these stories. Do you have time to share one more maybe? Um, from, do you have uh, maybe one from Homicide or just another one that's uh, intriguing?
0: I have one from Homicide that kind of coincides with when I was working in Undercover. Um, in addition to uh, Colombians, I also had got into the outlaw motorcycle gangs, the one percenters we call them. and. Um, <clears throat> made a few arrests and, and, and infiltrated a couple of clubs, not nearly as big as, as the, as Pablo's organization, but we're in. So now we jump forward to homicide and Jimmy and I were on call and there's in Laughlin, Nevada, just about 80 miles South of Vegas, there's an annual motorcycle rally um, called the river run. And every, Big motorcycle group attends it. it. It's like if you're familiar with Sturgis, it's like Sturgis, mm-hmm. but to a little bit small. We'd have 60 70,000 bikers show up in this little town of Laughlin, and it was just a big party, man. It was just a big Harley party and people driving around crazy and having fun. This one particular year, the Hells Angels and the hell's angels are like the top of the food chain when it comes to outlaw motorcycle gangs. Mm. So they're always in competition with other groups that want to make themselves as bad as the hell's angels. And and there there's always people looking to start a fight with the hell's angels and the hell's angels. Most of the time always win. There's this group called the Mongols and they really wanted to go to go to war with the Hells Angels, and they did at, at Laughlin that night. Um, the two groups got together at Harrah's Casino, started a fight, started shooting. Uh, three bikers ended up dead in the casino. Thank God none of the citizens were hurt because there were just hundreds of people flooded in, in Harris Casino, and there was probably 75 to 100 bikers fighting each other in a the melee. They were just beating the shit out of each other. Um, And like I said, three of them got killed, two Hells Angels and one of the Mongols were dead. Um, And my partner and I had that case. That that was probably the most notorious murder case that we had because it ended up being, having national implications. The the feds, the ATF took the case over and wanted to make it a RICO case and um, they weren't able to do that, but we had think 45 Hells Angels in a conference room. <laughs> and uh,
4: How do you get them to talk? I figured they, they wouldn't talk.
0: Yeah, they didn't talk. They didn't say a thing. All they did was give us their name, just like, you know, prisoner of war, name, rank, and serial number. That's it. So we had them detained and they had their full vests on, their colors on, what they call the colors with the, you know, their, their leather vest with their insignias on the back. And mm. they were in this... They were in this conference room, and, and um, I walk up to the front of them, and here I am looking at these 40 hell's angels that want to kill me and my partner, and we tell them, we said, look, um, we're here to figure out what happened. You don't have to talk to us, but if you tell us what happened, it's going to make it a lot easier. We're going to find out who killed your two brothers, You know, they refer to each other as brothers, and um, they had known that two of their members had died, and a couple others were in the hospital, and they thought more would die, but... These guys still didn't talk, man. They wouldn't. They didn't say anything. They just said, "Look, we respect what you're doing. We know that you got a job to do, but we'll take care of it ourselves." So that's what they did. They, you know, they ended up uh, having another fight at another rally in Florida, and they, um, this just this war between the Hells Angels and the Mongols just continued. Um,
4: what, what are they fighting over? What are they fighting over? Pride and ego, and you know.
0: Technically, the Mongols wanted to move into some of the territory where the Hells Angels ran the drug trade. Um, the Mongols wanted to move in and take that territory from them. And the Hells Angels said, no, you know, we, you're, you don't get to come into our turf and just think you're going to take over our neighborhood and, and start slinging dope. We're the dope dealers here. You go someplace else. You know, that that the outlaw motorcycle gang is an entirely different culture, man. It, it, it's... um." That's a four-beer story when you start talking yeah. about Tim. Yeah. Uh, so
4: were you able to – I mean, that seems like an almost impossible homicide to – unless you've got surveillance video, right? And you we can, had a
0: Yeah, we had a lot of surveillance video, and you can find it online. Um, there's this one Hells Angel, his name's Calvin Schaefer. Um, mm-hmm. They now call him Casino Calvin because the video footage of Calvin Schaefer was in the middle of the casino during this big fight He's got a gun out and he's just shooting in any direction that he can, just shooting randomly at anybody that looked like they were a part of the Mongols. Um, And how he didn't hit anybody. When you look at this video, just (laughs) shake your head and you go, Oh my God, because he's surrounded. There's this huge fight going on, this big gang fight going on. And he's just shoot. Boom, 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 boom. And, And I'm looking at this. I'm going, Oh, my God, how come we don't have a dozen people dead on the casino floor? Um, and it was, uh, it was a crazy case. That was a career case because we had to lock down the entire resort, the entire Harrah's Resort in Laughlin. It was completely locked down. We turned off the elevators. Uh, we didn't let anybody move out. We had that crime scene because the entire crime scene was the parking lot and the casino floor of this major hotel in, in Laughlin. We had, we had it locked up for uh, almost a day. And, wow uh, yeah that, that, that was a crazy one
4: ours must have been pissed because they lost a lot of money uh they the were game. very
0: pissed but we i mean what what choice did we have they got dead bodies in their casino playing <laughs> yeah. on the in between the slot video poker machines um you know here's a dead, dead hell's angel right there and, and they're uh fellas, how long do you think it's going to be will we be open in a few hours and we said no no you'd be lucky to be open in 24 hours and so, right
4: did, d- so did so did did you ever track down the, uh, the actual shooters who killed those guys?
0: Yeah. Yeah, we did. We tracked them all down, uh, went to court. Uh, several of them, uh, I think 16, were convicted of various crimes. Um, they didn't get a conviction on the murders because they couldn't tie a specific weapon to the bullets that were recovered from the bodies of the dead guys. The Hells Angels believed that they knew who killed their two Hells Angels, and the Mongols believed they knew which Hells Angel killed uh, the Mongol. So they ended up, you know, trying to settle it themselves. But we ended up putting, I want to say, 15 of them in prison over that.
4: Wow. But but none on a homicide. Uh, none on the can... murders, no,
0: because we, could, we couldn't prove the murders. But we got them for attempted murder, battery with deadly weapon. There's... In, the, in that video that I was talking about, there's uh, one Hells Angel standing between a row of slot machines and he's got a wrench, a big pipe wrench in his hand. And you see him kind of squatting down like this, and a Mongol comes walking by right in front of him and he reaches up and nails this guy in the head with this pipe wrench. And I'm going, Jesus, how did this guy not die? Because you can just see blood splattering everywhere. Wow. And, yeah, I mean, it was, it was. I don't know how he survived it, but he had a, a fractured skull and he walked out, of the, the Mongol walked out of the hospital about a week later.
4: And wow! yeah. It was, skull. Yeah. Look,
0: look it up, man. Look up the hell's angel Mongol shootout in Laughlin and, and you'll uh, see a lot of video.
4: What year was that?
0: Uh, oh, one. 2001.
4: Um, yeah. wow. Um, and I thought that uh, the world came together in 2001 because of nine eleven, but I guess not the uh, Hells Angels and the Mongols. Um, so you told me one time, screw the surviving my biggest case singular. This is fun. We'll go a little bit longer here because I love yeah. hearing these stories, even though they're yeah. dangerous and scary. But you said you once had a, a barrel of a gun shoved down your mouth. What was that?
0: It wasn't shoved down my mouth. It was put to the side of my head, a cocked uh Cuban drug dealer. Um, this is this is kind of a funny story. I remember the funny stories, you know, because I don't like to remember the ugly ones. Yeah. But uh, you know, I, I I'm in there in the, with the Cubans, another Cuban drug dealer, not associated with the Barry Seal case. And I'm buying cocaine, and you know, we're sitting in there shooting the shit in the, in the dope house. And next thing I feel, next thing I hear is a gun being cocked, and then I feel the pressure on my head. And I look like this, and it's a it's a 45 Colt, and it's cocked, ready to go. And this, this Cuban guy says. If you're the fucking pigs, we're going to kill you, man. And nobody will ever find you. And, and I said, well, fuck you, because I'm not. So if you want to lose another customer, because I would spend a lot of money with him. I said, you want to lose another customer, then go ahead and do it. And he backed off. And here's the funny part. <laughs> we arrested him. And he got five years or something like that. And he gets out of prison. And when he gets out of prison, he goes right back to dealing dope, right? So we have an investigator says, hey, we got a guy that's um, dealing dope. And is this is where he is. Well, what this what the investigator didn't do is look in to see who it was. It was the same guy that I had busted and th- that put the gun to my head back then. And I said, OK, well, it, because the way it works is your investigators will talk to their informants and their sources. And, you know, Joe over here in the corner is selling dope. And this is what he sells. And I'll introduce your undercover guy as a friend of mine. And you can start buying dope from it. Well, that's what happened in this case. What we didn't know, it was the guy that I put in prison five years earlier. And so I walk into this dope house and I see the guy and I go, oh, shit, he's going to remember oh, it was boy. me. Oh, boy. And, and he looks at me and he goes, I know you. I said, no, you don't. He goes, yeah, you're you're that Mark Ramos. You're the one that put me in prison. I said, fuck you. And, you know, I just go back and forth. I said, no, I'm not. And I don't know what the hell you're talking about. My hair was different at the time. I didn't have a ponytail. I had it cut shorter. And then I wow. had a beard and he goes, no, you're know the guy that put me in prison. And it was back and forth. I said, no, no, I'm not. You're wrong, man. You're wrong. I, I'm just here to buy some Coke. And I, I talked him out of it. He, he, he thought, for, okay, yeah, that no, I believe you. You're not him. He looks different. So <laughs> we bust wow. him again. We him again, And he goes, I knew it was you. I fucking knew it was you. And I said, yeah, you dumb shit. It was me all the time. Why did you keep selling coke? He goes, because I needed the money. I wanted the money. And I said, well, you're going back to prison again. <laughs> and, and I just had to laugh at that one because the dumbass knew it was me. He knew that I was the one that put him in prison. And he let me talk him out of it.
4: Wow. Well, you must, I mean, you must be amazing under pressure. And that's my next question. I mean, how do you, how do you keep your cool? Is it it adrenaline that keeps you going in a situation when you have a gun on your temple? How do you stay calm? I mean, that's like a, you know, that's a split second and your life could be over.
0: Right. Right. Well, you can't react, you know, you react later and, and count your blessings later. But at the time when you're in the situation, if you show any kind of reaction that is fear or anything like that, they'll take advantage of it. You know, you are like, you're like a, a, a wounded gazelle on the Serengeti, you know, the lions will find you. And um, you don't, you don't react that way. I, I mean, I knew if the guy wanted to, he would have killed me. And you know, the only thing that, that kept me not from falling apart is I never would have known that it happened. I wouldn't even have heard the noise. I would just be instantly be dead. Right. So yeah. it wouldn't have hurt. And um <clears throat> You know, you you just you count your blessings, count your blessings and realize that, yeah, I could easily have been killed by a number of people. But I wasn't knock on wood and and I'm still here and and, um, fortunate to be here. I lost a lot of friends. I lost um, six friends, line of duty deaths in my career.
4: Wow. All undercover guys?
0: No, one undercover and the rest were uh, patrol officers, two motor officers and two and patrol officers.
4: In like shootouts and stuff?
0: Yeah, yeah, just surprise shootouts. Um, One motor Mm. officer made a traffic stop on a guy that he didn't know had just shot and killed his wife. He was pulling Mm. him over because he was speeding away from the scene. He had no idea what the guy had just done. He Mm. pulls him over, and the guy didn't, Mark didn't even get a chance to get off his motorcycle. The guy comes out of the car, boom, shoots one shot, caught him right in the head, killed him
4: right there. Wow, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, And for those listening, These guys literally put their lives on the line in law enforcement. Um, Yeah, it's dangerous business. Are either your sons police officers?
0: No, they both thought about it. And I said, no, don't do it. I said, go be a fireman. Everybody likes firemen. And, you know, they're glad when the fireman shows up. But nobody likes it when the cops show up and, and, you know, just do something else. So fortunately, they didn't. And um, they both went on to do architecture work. Uh, Architecture. I, I was glad of that. Yeah.
4: Oh wow. And yeah. and there's uh for those who are listening and not watching there's a giant cutout behind you. Who is that? There's that's me. That's you?
0: That's it's me tough, right there. Yeah.
4: What year is that? It's tough to tell.
0: That was uh I had received my 20 year pin. That was in um So let's see. 93. 93. Yeah,
4: so that was cool. your first no, 70. So 83, you were, when you did that undercover work with yeah. Barry Seal. you were about 10 years in at that point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
4: So when you, when you look back on this crazy career years, first of all, is it weird to be retired? Is it like, do you miss the adrenaline?
0: Oh yeah. I miss the adrenaline. Yeah. I miss that a lot. You know, I'll look at you know, big high profile murders and think, Oh man, that would be a good one to work. You know, if, when, when, uh, those four kids, those poor kids up in Idaho were I said, man, that would be a good case to work. But, um, yeah you miss the adrenaline you don't miss the hours you don't miss the uh being away from home so much and and you know just the mental the mental stress you go under the emotional stress you go under especially in homicide you know patrol in that you don't have the stress that you do in in homicide because you're responsible to bring a killer to justice and you only get one shot at it and if you screw up one little bit he's gonna walk and and um, it calls for a much more dedicated Performance to your job. Then patrol. You know, patrol. You're done at the end of the day. You hang everything up and you go home and, and do whatever it is you want to do and, and wait for the next day. But um, homicide, you 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 live at 24 hours and um, it take it takes a uh, takes a lot of patience, a, a lot of dedication, and um, you really gotta learn the job and know what you're doing to to make a difference in homicide. Um, you know, there were there are times when I didn't feel I didn't feel comfortable testing for homicide until I had 20 years on the job, and that included all my undercover time, because you got to know how to be a good investigator to go to homicide. And that's not the yeah. case anymore. We don't have people coming in to homicide that have that kind of experience, so um, they learn it on the job. But in my view, you need to have it. The day you start the job in homicide.
4: Wow. Um, and I and I assume obviously with undercover work, especially narcotics, you're not working normal hours, right? You're oh, working no. You're working all sorts of crazy hours. That right. must have been tough, right? With raising two boys on your own. That must have been tough.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the one thing that is is a given is that no drug deal ever goes on time. Um, they're always <laughs> they're always waiting and waiting and waiting. Um and you always work at night because that's when that's when the dope dealers are out at night. And, you know, sometimes when you have to go from one deal to the next, you end up working a 12, 13 hour shift, which in narcotics is long because you're just going from one to the other, to the other, to the other. So it, it was... Um, but by the same token, it was a kick. It was a lot of fun working narcotics. I mean, you're not doing anything that a high school kid isn't doing. You're going out and buying dope from strangers. You know, in mm-hmm. essence, that's what you're doing. And, you know, you get this cool undercover car and a cool undercover apartment and undercover credit cards. And you're out playing the role of a uh, some you know guy that wants to buy a lot of dope. Um, So that that was a lot of fun.
4: And do you have um, like, how does that work in terms of do you have an alias? Like, do you have to know your... Uh, date of birth and your name and all that.
0: Yeah, yeah, we all had undercover IDs, you know, uh, actual driver's licenses and credit cards, and and uh, you know, you stick to something that you can remember under pressure because they'll do that. You know, they'll grab your wallet and say, "Okay, so what's your name?" and and Tell them the name that's on there and and what's your address and and, uh, when were you born and what's your social security number and all that stuff. And so you you use something that you're not going to forget. In my case, I used my brother's date of birth, changed the the social security number, flipped around the digits, and um, used a good friend of mine, his name. So um, everything was easy to remember.
4: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) These are the things that uh, normal civilians like us don't think about. so looking back, how, how many years were you on on the force for? 35. 35? 35. 35. So what so kind of what's the um I don't know, what's your one big takeaway from your 35 years? What do you when you look back, like what's uh what's sort of the what do you say to yourself about those 35 years?
0: You know, I I don't really think about it that much. I I, I think you know when people ask me, you know, what Stuff like that. I just said I just want to make sure I made a difference, and and I made a difference. You know, I um, probably not as big a difference as I wanted or I think I made, but you know, there's a lot of people that are alive because of the things that that I did, and there's a lot of people who are in prison because of the things that I did. And at the end of the day, if you can sit back and say, you know, this family wouldn't still be a cohesive unit if it hadn't have been for something that I did to help them with, or. You know, this family would still be wondering who murdered their daughter if I hadn't uh, found out who it was and put him in prison. So there, there's a certain amount of satisfaction that you get from from being part of the justice system and seeing a guy go to prison for what he did. And there's also frustration when you can't. When you know that you this guy killed this pregnant 7-Eleven clerk and you don't have enough to put him in prison. Because you know the burden is not there, I mean the burden of proof is on us, and we haven't crossed that threshold where we can take it to a jury and say, "This is the guy who killed the pregnant seven eleven clerk." Um, mm-hmm. so there you know there's there's a fair amount of frustration um, but as long as you know you did the best you can and the cards just didn't fall in place like they should have, you know sometimes you think about that.
4: Is that an actual story? Was there a pregnant seven eleven clerk who was murdered? Wow, yep. and did were you able to solve that case?
0: We solved it. We didn't have enough to take it to a jury, um, and the guy's in prison now for an unrelated attempted murder. And um, we worked that one for years and years. I even worked on it when I came back to hunt, uh, to the cold case unit after you know retiring for a little bit. Um, but yeah, that one that was that was a source of frustration because we knew that this guy had done it, but we just couldn't prove it.
4: And do you take that, it, it, do you take it personally, especially this a pregnant woman and, and you can't, you know who, you know, he did it, but you yeah. can't get him. Is it, is it, do you take it real personally?
0: You don't take it real personal because you know that you've done the best you can. and it, And the reason he didn't go to trial isn't because something you didn't do because you did everything you possibly can. It's just the evidence wasn't there. The circumstances weren't there and they weren't strong enough to take it to a jury, but you know... And I know that I did the best I could with what I had on that particular case. And it just, it just didn't come together the way we wanted it to. Wow.
4: Um, Well, detective Phil Ramos uh, said that he made a difference he he made a huge difference. Um, Put away bad guys, help good people. Uh, Detective Ramos once again is a retired senior homicide detective with the Las Vegas metropolitan police department 35 years of service, last 15 years in homicide, 12 years undercover uh, in narcotics. And you heard a crazy story about infiltrating Pablo Escobar's uh, crime uh, family and being threatened to death for it and coming out on the other side. Um, Detective Phil Ramos is also a three time officer of the year, a native Las Vegas. Uh, He also infiltrated the Cuban mob. Um, and again, uh, he was there for Tupac's autopsy, confirming he did, in fact, die. And we'll get him back on. Uh, we usually do one case, but with uh, Detective Phil Ramos, there's probably a hundred more to go. Um, so, Detective Phil Ramos, thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. And uh, My pleasure. Look forward to having, yeah, look forward to having you as a best guest. Um, till then, love you, America. Love you, Las Vegas.